0: See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, and a member, FDIC 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. Residents at
2: Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice.
3: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to the latest installment, and the last, of our Freedom of Speech mini-series. Just yesterday, we heard from Eugene Volokh, a professor at UCLA School of Law. Today, we're going to hear from another staunch defender of freedom of speech, but one who is coming at the issue from almost the opposite place on the political spectrum. Nadine Strawson was the president of the American Civil Liberties Union for almost two decades, up until 2008. She was the first woman and the youngest person ever to lead the organization. She's now a professor at New York Law School. I spoke to Nadine back in October when the world was very different, and yet we were wrestling with a lot of the same issues. Nadine, I want to start with hate speech because... After a long career of focusing on all aspects of freedom of expression, you wrote a book recently called Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship, which is, a, I think, a appropriately provocative and controversial title. So what do you mean when you say hate speech? There are lots of different definitions out there.
4: The
5: core of the concept is speech that conveys hateful, discriminatory, stereotyped ideas, particularly on bases such as race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, groups that have traditionally been marginalized or excluded. But if you look at how we use the term in everyday parlance in the United States, you will see that people are using that term absolutely profligately to describe and decry and often try to censor any speech that conveys any idea that they hate. And some of this has been well publicized. For example, on some college campuses, T-R-U-M-P, chalked on sidewalks or worn on T-shirts or caps, has been attacked as hate speech. Uh, Some politicians have denounced Black Lives Matter activism and protests as hate speech. Most chillingly to me, although I understand where it's coming from, On some campuses and other venues, the phrase free speech has been attacked as hate speech. And the reason why I say I know where that's coming from, sadly, Noah, is that so often white supremacists and white nationalists and other hate mongers have had the right to express their repulsive ideas because of free speech principles. And unfortunately, that means in the minds of too many people racist speech and other hate-mongering speech has become equated with free speech. So I really had to uh, write. I felt absolutely compelled to write the book because I have been a proud social justice warrior my entire life. I consider that a compliment, not an insult, as some people use the term. And I am absolutely committed to freedom of speech. And I am absolutely convinced that both goals are inextricable that we cannot advance equality, dignity, diversity, inclusivity, especially for groups that have traditionally been discriminated against, without having really robust free speech, robust enough to extend even to so called hate speech.
3: So let's focus then, Nadine, if we can, on what I would consider the hard case, the kind of speech that almost every country that considers itself, roughly speaking, civilized in the world, does sanction or outlaw to some degree. Let's call it dehumanizing speech that is directed at traditionally marginalized groups. And I want to ask you, in that, to my mind, somewhat hard case of hate speech, what do you think about the main rationales that are usually used to justify regulation? So the first is that such speech has a tendency to lead to real world, concrete, physical harm against people from marginalized groups. That it's not enough to only prohibit speech that immediately threatens imminent violence, but that ultimately we need to also think about the downstream effect. You know, when Hitler starts talking, he's not got crowds in front of him immediately about to lynch people, but over time he builds up support through a steady diet of hate, And so goes the argument, we need to nip that in the bud. It'll be too late if we wait until the point that there's an angry crowd. We have to worry about the structural development of dehumanization because we know, having lived after the terrible 20th century and we know in the 21st century, we're still encountering genocide. And so the argument goes, we need to limit hate speech to prevent that kind of disaster. What's your primary answer to that charge?
5: Before I answer the question, Noah, I have to stress, because you asked about dehumanizing speech that's targeted at particular groups. And as you adverted to later in your excellent question, um, certain speech that meets that criterion can and should be punished consistent with first amendment principles so if the speech is targeting a an individual or a small group of individuals and if it constitutes intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen that can and should be punished if it's targeted harassment or bullying that can and should be punished if it means to instill a reasonable fear that the audience that's targeted it is going to be subject to harm, that is a punishable so-called true threat. Uh, so, in general, I and others summarize this principle under U.S. law, and by the way, also under international human rights law, as the emergency principle. When the speech presents a direct threat of serious, imminent, specific harm, then it can and should be punished, but I completely agree with you that speech does cause harm, even if it does not satisfy that strict definition or at least it certainly can potentially cause harm more indirectly and remotely as you as you ask in your question and my reason for opposing censorship is not because i dispute the potential harmful impact of non-punishable hate speech but rather because i think that censorship is at best an ineffective way to counter the potential harm, and at worst, a counterproductive one.
3: So let's let's push on that, Nadine. So, yeah. you know, let's talk about mitigation. We're mm-hmm. not talking about curing the harm. So um, imagine you have a country, we have a lot of European countries that fit this description today, where there are far-right politicians who are getting more and more votes in each election, and their rhetoric is getting more and more radical. And this time, it's not Jews that they're primarily biased against. Now it's Muslims. It's still an immigrant group. It's still a group that's being labeled criminal and another. other. The parallels to, you know, Europe in the 1920s and, and 30s are, are obvious. Let's say we want to say, you know, maybe we won't ban all of that speech, but we're not going to let you be elected to the parliament as a party if you advocate expressly racist views. And some European countries have rules like that. And again, this isn't meant to eliminate all racism. It's meant to mitigate the real world effects especially when organized political parties realize that they can gain more votes by using forms of hate speech. I'm assuming that's not okay with you either, even though that's something short of a pure ban, because it is it is a th- technique of mitigation though.
5: The, the facts that you cite, Noah, actually support my point because the fact is that those European countries have extremely strict anti-hate speech laws that are very strictly enforced. And they have not prevented the rise of hateful expression by hateful parties that are gaining support among the people. Germany is an excellent case in point. Uh, It has the strictest anti-hate speech laws in the world, with the possible exception of some Middle Eastern countries. The laws are extremely strictly enforced. They are enforced against politicians, as well as candidates, as well as elected officials. And as you well know, despite, and some would Some German commentators say because of those laws that they have spurred the frustration and the anger and the backlash that has fueled the frightening rise of the AFD, Um, the Alternative for Germany, which is an expressly racist party. uh, It got 13% of the vote in the last national election a couple of years ago. And Germany also has had uh, distressing levels of violence against Jews, against Roma, against refugees, to the point that Angela Merkel, for the very first time in German history actually appointed a cabinet-level minister for anti-Semitism, and the head of the largest council of Jewish organizations in Germany, warned Jews that they should not feel safe wearing the Yamlka, the skull cap that some observant male Jews feel a religious obligation to wear in public. Now, I know you can't prove a counterfactual. Maybe the situation would be even worse if Germany wasn't enforcing yeah, those Yeah, you took, those you took the words right yeah. out of my mouth. I mean, yeah. I, 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 unless you can help me on this, I don't think there's any way I could ever prove that. But it's clearly the case that... Um, even very strictly enforced laws have not been enough to sufficiently quell the rise of hateful expression and conduct and the same thing happened in the Weimar Republic during which Hitler rose to power you know and and that's often cited as epitomizing this situation you know and i i agree as the daughter of a holocaust survivor my goodness You know, if anything could have prevented Hitler from rising to power, I certainly would have been in favor of it. But back then, Germany also already had very strict anti-hate speech laws that were enforced against Nazis repeatedly, and they loved it. It was a propaganda platform for them, an opportunity for them to gain attention that they otherwise never would have and sympathy they otherwise never would have. And that is the same strategy that's used by hate mongers in this country, Noah, and I don't at all mean to compare them to the Nazis. Thank goodness they're certainly not advocating genocide, but you know, the Milo Yiannopolises and the Richard Spencers uh, of this world, other provocateurs revel. Oh, and in the online context, Alex Jones, you know, they celebrate when they're subject to attempts to ban or punish them because they know that that gains them attention that they otherwise would not have received. Organizations whose work I generally um, very much admire, the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, whose mission is focused on countering actual discrimination. They've actually urged college students and others Please resist the temptation to try to de-platform or shout down or shut down or otherwise suppress the voices of those that are conveying, trying to convey hateful messages. It may feel very morally satisfying, but it is actually going to do more harm than good.
3: We'll be right back.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022
4: J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: So let me turn now then, Nadine, to the question of social media. And let me try out an argument that you know, I know is not yours, but I, that I believe as a person who's very deeply committed to free speech principles, and it runs something like this. It says, you know, Nadine, you and your work with the ACLU have convinced us, and the forefathers and foremothers of free speech doctrine have convinced us that the government shouldn't be trusted to engage in regulation of speech. But when we turn to the context of social media, the very same First Amendment principles that tell us the government can't regulate also tell us that a private publisher or a private platform is protected by the First Amendment in possessing its own right and authority to make its own decisions about what content it does or doesn't want to allow on its platform or it does or doesn't want to promote to varying degrees. From this premise, the argument goes on to say that if a company doesn't want to allow hate speech on its platform, it should be allowed to prohibit it and that it's also desirable for platforms that have the capacity to reduce the amount of hate that's in circulation to use their own tools and techniques for engaging in that form of regulation you know full disclosure i've been advising facebook on uh, the creation of an oversight board facebook itself like all the other major platforms does limit hate speech On its platform. If that's allowed by the First Amendment, if it doesn't threaten at its core the idea of, of free speech, because after all, the platforms also have free speech rights, why shouldn't those private actors take a different stance than the government does or should?
5: I completely agree with everything you said until you got to the desirable so-called content moderation by the social media giants, uh, including Facebook. I couldn't agree with you more, Noah, that we have no free speech rights vis-a-vis private sector actors. I, for one, would balk at government trying to rein in what I do believe to be the free speech editorial rights of social media companies, just as I, I would balk at uh, that power being used for traditional media. Where I part company with you is on the desirability Of Facebook using its enormous power, and we'll just use Facebook as an example. And but the points I'd make I would apply to the companies that have dominant power, as the Supreme Court said in a decision a couple of years ago. They really constitute the major platform now in our society and in our political sphere, not only for discussions between you and me and our friends and our colleagues, but also between we the people, to quote the opening words of the Constitution, who wield sovereign power in this country and those we elect to represent us. So the major power in terms of not only individual free expression, but also democratic self-government is now in the hands of these powerful private sector Actors. And I have to say, that worries me. As a civil libertarian, the question is, whom do I distrust more? The government, which I traditionally instinctively uh, distrust for a uh, good reason based on, on history. Uh, but also, it's hard to trust a powerful private sector entity, no matter how. Good-spirited the individuals associated with it may be, and no matter how brilliant and, you know, uh, people that they um, are working with, such as you, Noah, and with your uh, commitment to free speech— Ultimately, they're not accountable to we, the people, but ultimately accountable to shareholders. I guess in the case of Facebook, that means to Mark Zuckerberg, right? And that's worrisome. But that said, I don't think that there is a legal solution of government imposing limits on how Facebook exercises its editorial power. I'll I'll try to remain open-minded. So for me now, the question is, practically speaking, is it in fact desirable for Facebook to try to define and to try to enforce standards against hate speech? And my reason for concluding, no, although I will, to the best of my ability, try to be open-minded as new evidence comes in. Uh, But I think it is as doomed to be Arbitrary at best and discriminatory at worst, as all so-called hate speech, so-called standards have been when enforced by government around the world throughout history. So,
3: Nadine, let me let me make then the a different version of the of the argument on mm-hmm. the other side. So, I'm going to begin by conceding to you. I completely agree that if we don't trust government, there's no reason we should trust private corporations, and it doesn't matter how, you know, well-intentioned or ill-intentioned they or their leading shareholders might be. I I agree. There's no reason we should trust them. The argument, though, for restricting hate speech on social media, I think, takes seriously your point that increasingly social media is where we go to engage in the civic Republican conversation that we need to run our country. And the argument would be something like this. In order for us to have a collective series of conversations that we need to be a functioning democracy— We need to have some basic guidelines of civility and of not speaking in a way that shuts up other people. And, you know, again, I am with you that we don't trust the government to come up with those standards, but we could be a little more experimental in the social media context, partly because the social media companies can change their minds. They can alter their standards. They can do real world experiments. They can see if certain kinds of speech are leading vulnerable people to get off the service, or to shut down or not speak. There's some better tools available here than there would be available to a government. Why not run the experiment? Why begin a priori with the view that all regulations of speech are gonna go awry?
5: I certainly am open to experiment. And as I said earlier, Noah, I am open to considering evidence. And my starting premise is, I'm only looking for what is the least bad solution. Because I I see problems with all of the options. I see the problem that you're talking about. I associate myself very much with a number of reports that have been done on these issues by PEN America, the organization that represents writers, including journalists, and very much advocates free speech. And a couple of years ago, Penn did a handbook for writers and bloggers and journalists about the hazards of being on social media, trolling and doxing and harassment. And they uh, did a survey of their members, which showed that people were being driven off and ceasing. Journalists were stopping they're ending their social media commentary, especially Women and members of minority groups. So I couldn't agree with you more. I had earlier said there are free speech concerns here on both sides, right? Uh, Non-regulated and regulated. But Pan America's proposed response is not regulation beyond enforcing legal standards that exist already, as we talked about, against targeted harassment and bullying and so forth. But beyond that, PEN America was advocating a series of free speech type responses including by publishers by editors by friends and and colleagues and in addition to experimenting with content moderation and you know you, you know better than I do that Facebook wasn't always trying to restrict hate speech so it also wasn't an a priori assumption that there would be content regulation including of hate speech on these social media companies and I know that Facebook and the others are experimenting with different definitions and different ways of enforcing the definitions and so forth. So I do appreciate that um, open-mindedness and experimentation. But also in the spirit of experimentation, I have read with great hopefulness about um, uh, efforts that have been funded by Facebook and other social media giants for how can we harness the power of social media to promote counter speech of various types that will be another way of countering the potential adverse impact of hate speech, uh, rooting people toward uh, affirmative information that will counter the statements that are being made by hate mongers, providing support for people who are disparaged by hate mongers, and so forth.
3: Yeah, that that all seems, that seems like a potentially promising direction. So let's talk then about Uh, Trends, And here I want to ask you a question that's maybe a tiny bit impolite. You're a self-described social justice warrior, and you also simultaneously are deeply committed to freedom of expression. And doesn't that make you, and I, I might include myself in this category too, doesn't that make us dinosaurs? Hasn't there been a radical change over the last 15 or 20 years? It happened gradually. It didn't happen all in one go. But if you look at where broadly speaking, progressive thinkers are today compared to where they were 20 years ago, the trend seems to be completely against you. The trend seems to be, and I see this with my students, and I see it in the work of my generational contemporaries who are intellectuals writing from the progressive perspective, there seems to have been a major retreat on the left from the values of strong civil libertarian free speech, whereas on the right, there's been almost a huge rise in support for the freedom of speech. I mean, we see something very close to a 180-degree flip, where if you think of the classic Supreme Court cases of the 60s, there it was the the court's greatest liberals who were in favor of freedom of expression, and the conservatives were in favor of censorship. And now, if anything, it's going the other way, and conservatives are most strongly in favor of freedom of expression, and maybe it's not quite true on the Supreme Court, but more broadly in the society, freedom of speech is not so favored among progressives. So what's going on, and... Are, are we dinosaurs?
5: <laughs> uh, I disagree with the factual generalizations to this extent, Noah, that I read every survey and they're, to me, inconclusive and do show that depending on what the subject is, you get self-described liberals and progressives who are against censorship or for it. And the same is true for self-described conservatives. And um, in fact, I think this situation throughout my entire adult lifetime, and I'll pull the age rank on you. I've been uh, in the trenches probably for a couple more decades. In the early 1980s, Nat Hentoff, who was very active with the ACLU, a journalist, wrote a book whose title I think said it all. It was Freedom of Speech for Me, but not for thee, how the left and right are relentlessly censoring each other. But I obviously believe that there are too many social justice activists who do not understand uh, how important free speech is to advance their causes. That's what motivated me to write my book. And as one astute reviewer uh, commented, it's very clear that my book is aimed at The left. That is the main audience now that I believe needs persuading. And I do see a particular need to make a case that is rooted specifically in the social justice causes as a rationale for supporting free speech.
3: Nadine, I want to thank you not just for this uh, terrific conversation, but for fighting the good fight in a in a serious way, both in the trenches and in the leadership role for so long. I've learned such a huge amount from your free speech advocacy, and I learned a lot from this book. And uh, I hope we can keep on talking about these really important issues. I guess that's the whole point of free speech, right? To discuss the idea as long as we want and for as much time as we want and hope that we get it right eventually.
5: And right back at you, Noah, thank you so much for your work, including doing your best to uh, preserve a wonderful free speech environment on Facebook.
3: Let's hope so. Thanks a lot, Nadine. Take care. Coming from the left of the political spectrum where the ACLU has mostly been ever since its founding in the 1920s, Nadine Strossen offers a vision of free speech that's grounded in a deep skepticism and distrust of who controls the government and therefore of what will happen when speech gets regulated. It's in the DNA of Nadine's view to believe that the government is not likely to serve the interests of the dispossessed, of minorities, or of those who lack power in the society. She therefore thinks that any time we have limitations on speech from the government, and indeed she goes further and says any time even private entities like social media companies limit freedom of speech, the results are likely to be, roughly speaking, statist, to serve the interests of power, not to serve the interests of the powerless. Nadine's perspective is to some degree at odds with the views of many younger left liberals, many of whom believe that free speech has ultimately come to be used as a tool to help powerful forces rather than functioning as a tool to protect the alternative and dissenting views of minorities and the powerless. This is a difficult question and a hard problem to solve because it depends on different people's predictive assessments of what's actually going on in the world and what might go on in the world if trends continue. I'm grateful to listeners for sticking with us as we've gone deeper and deeper into the issue of freedom of speech. No doubt we'll return to the issue in certain ways in the future, and we'll certainly continue to keep a close eye on it. Until I speak to you next time, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Bell. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And one last thing, I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.